She was taken to her first picket line at the age of four years old by her mother in support of migrant farm workers. And Dr. Lisa Calderon has been an advocate for her community ever since. Greetings again, Amanda Morgan. Speaking at the recent Aspen Ideas Festival, panelist guest, the current mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, indicated, when people are demonstrating in the streets, the real importance is not so much the slogans being used as defund the police and Black Lives Matter, but the sentiment and meaning that shapes the, that shapes the slogans in the first place. Work on the sentiments is really where the emphasis needs to be placed. On this edition, we continue setting into context the demonstrations and looking ahead to a possible new America being shaped. Our conversation continues with the Chief of Staff for Denver District 9, Council Member Candy Cedabaca, Regis University Professor and the first Latina to run for Denver Mayor and veteran community activist, Dr. Lisa Calderon. A lot of people are becoming intentional and unintentional documentarians, right? They are, you know, everyone can put it on their, their social media news feed and people can see um, we're no longer having to rely on what, you know, mainstream news organizations decide to cover, we can tell our own stories in our own ways, and we can see it through various different lenses. Um, so there's certainly that that factor of how um, injustices are being documented. You know, other folks did it in the past, like Ida B. Wells, when she recorded the lynchings going on in the South, and, yeah. you know, she wrote about it and she published about it and, and got targeted for it. But she was a, that social media of that time. And so mm -hmm. these are the times that we're in now. But I also think that there are some other factors that were at play for what we saw um, with the nationwide protests. One was people being, um, you know, because the governments and cities were shut down due to COVID, people were paying a lot more attention to social media. So we had people's undivided attention for a, a lot of what was going on. Uh, we also have the economic crisis. Um, so people were, were frustrated about that. Um, and then we have, you know, the issues of, um, you know, structural racism. So, you know, kind of the triple threat of, of the pandemic, stru structural racism and the economic crisis made this perfect storm of, you know, that ignited um, activism in an unprecedented way um, yeah, yeah. across the nation at the same time. Do you expect we may be seeing also a, a widening of the demonstrators' focus to include Latino issues, uh, migrant rights, that kind of thing, because the crowds are so diverse they can bring other um, other concerns to the forefront as well? Yeah, I think this is what organizers are now grappling with is that, um, and I actually also posted something on my Facebook page um, around the, you know, how, you know, Black Lives Matter movement as a, as a biracial woman who's both black and Latina or Afro-Latina, um, this isn't, when we say Black Lives Matter, it isn't uh, and not, um, you know, Latinos or indigenous people um, or, you know, even, you know, Asian folks who are also targeted um, yeah. by, you know, racism, right? So um, it's an opportunity to intersect our movement. I think where the, the struggle is, 
not wanting to take away from someone else's um, voice at the moment. How do we integrate without seeming like uh, folks are co-opting? How do we call in people to the work we're doing instead of calling out people um, for it? There's a concept called recentering the margins. And that uh-huh. is when you take people who have been on the margins of society by due to discrimination and you know racism and displacement and all of those other things, if we're focusing right now on black people being killed by the police and we do a deep dive into that, that is okay. And then if we shift gears in this other area, in this other community, and we're looking at Native lives that have also been lost disproportionately um, due to um, police violence, and we do a deep dive in that, that's okay. So in other words, you're shifting the spotlight from one marginalized group to another and their struggles, but they're all under this umbrella of of resisting, um, you know, this kind of, these kind of excessive force killings that are happening, Mm -hmm. then all of those things inform what it is that we're trying to do, which is, yes, we want a safer society and sometimes safer, a lot of times safer for folks of color doesn't necessarily mean a police presence in our neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Are we seeing some pushback with white citizens uh, confronting people of color in neighborhoods for any reason whatsoever? And and in, in many cases, the people of color live there as well. Yeah, I mean, I I think it was always there. It's just now being broadcast, right? The revolution will be televised, or at least it will be yeah. uh, videotaped yeah. on cell phones. Yeah. And I and I think that people are also feeling more empowered because we're not just talking about uh, police misconduct. We're also talking about when um, you know white privilege leads to entitlement uh, instead of allyship. Right. White privilege can be used for a positive by saying, I'm going to use my privilege um, that, you know, where I might have um, doors open to me that other folks of color don't have. I'm going to widen the door more so we can get more people in. And that's that's closer to visions of equity. But it becomes entitlement when it's it's mine. I have it and you all can't get it. And whether it's walking down the street, taking pictures of homes, because this is my street, this is my neighborhood, and you have no right to be here and take pictures of what you you, you want to, um, I think that is also what is being called out in this movement is people are, have had it. You know, we have had, yeah. um, you know, through at the federal government a permission to act out in ways that are blatantly uh, racist and hostile to people that um, are just are still stunning. And the example is being set at the top. And I think it has um, led to an increased polarization of our country. And so I think what you see when people are now filming those kinds of interactions, it's part of saying, we've had it, we've had enough. You know, we, we, we may not fight back physically, which good, I'm glad for, but here's how we are also going to fight back is we are going to publicize these actions so people could see what it is that we deal with when we go into spaces of entitled people who feel like we don't have a right to be there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the reason I bring that up because, 
we have that major community segment that do support what the police do and their practices and and as you said the entitlement there but they remain silent so how do we how do we reach them to make them a part of the change that's necessary well i i but they they also have influencers around them um, yeah. You know, there was a time in the, you know, segregated South and even segregated North in some places that, you know, absolutely by no, no way, shape or form were we going to integrate our schools and we will fight you for everything. And people felt righteous in that position. Yeah. Um, people felt righteous in a position to have whites only, um, you know, play, eating, uh, you know, restaurants. And, you know, so people felt righteous in that. But there were change makers around them from within their own community who stood up and said, this may make me unpopular with you. It may make, may strain our relationship and it will be very uncomfortable for me to stand up um, to my, my own um, group of folks, but I'm going to do it because it's the moral and right thing to do to treat everyone equitably, to treat everyone as human beings. Um, and I think that we need to, um, you know, folks, this is, this is going to take courageous moments from people and it isn't yeah. going to change minds right away. There was a report on, um, from, um, I believe the Kellogg Foundation that said, you know what, giving just a lot of stats to people about how bad, um, discrimination is tends to not really change people's minds. What changes yeah. people's minds is knowing people who they have a relationship with who have been treated unfairly, and they can then relate through that experience. So the more that we can interact with people, um, that people get out of their, their silos or their, you know, less than diverse communities, and when they start knowing people who have had these challenges, that's when we start seeing changes. Uh, we see that some of the other demonstrations have been infiltrated by other people so that uh, they're more violent at night, more peaceful during the day. And it, it seems as if it's being done to try to make the whole demonstration, the whole movement look bad. So we got a tale of two crowds. I think it also led us down a path where people, some people were more concerned about the property damage than the fact that, you know, a black man's life was squeezed out of him with a white officer's knee on the neck, right, which is kind of like an analogy to how, um, many black folks have felt historically in this country um, of collectively not being able to breathe because of the restrictions placed on our on our movements and our freedoms. Um, and so, you know, it, it it we need to keep the focus on where it needs to be, which sure. is again that that talk of no justice, no peace, and the and the different ways in which we can achieve that. A couple of last questions for you. What do the young demonstrators need to learn to channel their street energy into city council chambers, boardrooms, and government offices? Because, you know, weather's going to come along and they won't be in the streets, and they really need to learn how to operate inside the system to make the change they want permanent. Well, actually, I think that um, city council members have a lot to learn from the protesters in the streets who came in to, to city council yeah. and to really, you know, support the ideas of democracy and representation that they were elected 
to represent and are falling short on that. I mean, the fact that the public has so little time in public comment, the fact that, um, you know, it wasn't um, broadcast, uh, you know, publicly so people could see what people were saying until very recently, Um, the fact that, you know, we have contracts that get more attention um, for the venues in, at, at Red Rocks than we do for, you know, how do we expand the independent monitors authority? I mean, you know, there's, a, I think what we need to learn from the young protesters is that, you know, government is a social construct. It's made up of people and people can then change the rules if they wanted to. Um, mm-hmm. But the flip side of that, to your point, is that protests alone don't give us the mass policy changes that we need for what they are protesting for. And so we need, we need both. Uh, we need the protest to keep the pressure on the policymakers that they're not going away. And then we need their voices at the policy table about what do they want to see differently? How do we really all work on this, you know, experiment of, of democracy and perfect it? Um, through each of these iterations of tragedy and protest so that we can actually realize, you know, um, the American ideal of that people do have a voice in their city government. So for the young people, um, I guess direction you would give them as a veteran of this, patience, learning, participation, for all key attributes they need to learn to practice so they can get something done permanently and long-term then? Well, all of it, uh, and that there are also some short-term things that absolutely can happen if they keep the pressure on. So, um, yeah. you know, and, and to and to um, not to give up uh, if they don't see immediate change because um, there are things that they – there will be some immediate wins and there's going to be some things that will take a, a longer amount of time but that impatience, to me, is not a negative. It's, uh-huh. yes, let's, let's use it as energy to keep pushing, because I'm impatient, too, even though I've been doing this for the majority of my life, but I know it can be, it can be both. So look for those victories um, and just know that some are shorter and some are faster, um, but we need to keep pushing. Dr. Lisa Calderon. Chief of Staff for Denver District 9, a city council member, Candy C. DeBaca, Regis University professor, and the first Latina woman to run for Denver mayor. Many thanks to her again for sharing her insights and context behind the slogans and actions taking place on Denver and suburban streets. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Stay on your game. And many thanks to you as well for sharing a few moments of your valuable weekend with us.